Greeting friends and brethren, this is Dr. Bob Teal from the Continuing Church of God. And I want to talk about life, the book of life, resurrection of life, and the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is an annual holy day that typically comes in uh, September or October. It's always in September or October every year. It's based upon the Bible. And we're going to go through some scriptures about it. But I also want to talk about some ideas related to it and why Christians would be interested in some of these things. Now, we call it the Feast of Trumpets. The Jews tend to call it Rosh Hashanah, and that was not the original name for it. And we'll get to that in a moment. People of the Church of God have long kept the Feast of uh, Trumpets. And I'd like to read something from the late uh, Church of God leader, Herbert W. Armstrong, about it. He, said, he wrote, and he's quoting uh, the Old King James Version Bible, Leviticus 23 here. And the Lord spake, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial, not a shadow, a blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. He says, Here is picture to us the next blessed event in God's redemptive plan, when Christ shall come again in clouds with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God. 1 Thessalonians 4. This will be at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. He also wrote, unless Christ returns to resurrect the dead, we would not be granted eternal life. And then those who fall asleep in Christ Jesus would all have perished. He also wrote that, her, that Christ intervenes in the world events at the seventh or last trump. And he cites Revelation 11. The trumpet's a symbol of war. Jesus comes at a time of worldwide war when angry, nations are angry. As soon as the work of gathering the first fruits pictured by Pentecost is completed at the end of this present age, then Christ will begin to set up the tabernacle of David at his hand, and he'll recover the remnant of his people and find his lost sheep. Now, notice exactly when this takes place. And he's going to cite Isaiah 27, verse 13. It shall come to pass in that day that the great temper shall be blown, and they shall come which are ready to perish, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. When will this regathering happen? Well, it's not what we've seen over in the Palestine area, Israel area. This is talking about the time of the trump of the second coming of Jesus. And because the churches of the world don't keep the Feast of Trumpets, uh, many think it's really the return of the Jews to Israel, as I mentioned before. Now, the Feast of Trumpets points to a blowing of trumpets. Uh, I'm going to switch to the uh, New King James Version of the Bible. You want to go to Leviticus 23. Starting in verse 2. The Bible, your Bible teaches the feast of the eternal, or the Yahweh, or the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. These aren't Moses' feasts. These aren't the feasts of the Jews. These are God's feasts according to the word of God. Now let's drop down to verse 24. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, more than one, a holy convocation. Now, related to this, 
I want to read something that the old Worldwide Church of God published back in 1982 in the Good News magazine. Notice that the Israelites were to mark this particular day as a memorial of the meaning trumpets had for their nation, both physically and symbolically. God instructed them to use silver trumpets to gather the tribes for assemblies and a signal when it was time to move during their uh, migration to the promised land. So we have a silver trumpet here. Uh, these are known as a chetzatsara in Hebrew. And I'll do a, a, a great job on this. So that's the silver trumpet. Now, I'm, I'm not a, a trumpeter, as you can tell. And you have another opportunity to find that out in just a moment. Moreover, trumpets were blown during God's festivals. And at the beginning of each month, each use of the trumpet gave added meaning to the festivals as the Israelites understood them. Since the Israelites, awestruck and trembling, had already experienced God's tremendous blaring trumpet, when he, God gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, they were familiar with the use of trumpets uh, in correlation with momentous events in their lives. God continued to associate trumpet blasts with important events after that era as well, and he does so for us today. And trumpets are mentioned, for example, uh, in the Gospels, uh, as well as uh, Paul's writings to Thessalonians and the book of Revelation. I mentioned there were two types of uh, trumpets. Uh, now I want to go a bit more on blowing of trumpets. Let's go to Numbers 29. Give you a moment to get there and start verse 1. And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation, which would be what we call Jesus' trumpets. You shall do no customary work. For you it is a day of blowing the trumpets. You shall offer a burnt offering, the sweet aroma to the Lord. It talks about uh, different offerings. And the blowing of trumpets uses the term teruah. And now the, the Jewish Bible translates this as shofar here. Uh, and then the Tanakh says it's a horn. Now I happen to have a couple of different horns. Think one of my sons got this one in Jerusalem, and I think I got this one in Jerusalem. Now, in Psalm 81, the actual word shofar is used. So let's go to Psalm 81, start in verse 3. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon. So that says, Blow the shofar at the time of the new moon. What's the new moon? That's how the ancient Israelites started their months. And the month began with the new moon. So the new moon was new month. That's where we got the word month comes from moon. So let's see how, how I do with this one. And we have a smaller one. And these are just hollowed horns, by the way. Different horns make different sounds. And of course, there's people who can blow them uh, better than I do. 
Anyway, notice it's supposed to be done at the time of the new moon, which for sure meant then, since the Feast of Trumpets begins the first day of the seventh month, that Shofar was certainly blown at the beginning of that. Now I'd like to go to Ezra chapter 3. I'd like to read something regarding the uh, this from the book of Ezra, starting in verse 4. It says, They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as is written, and you can read about that also in Leviticus 23. And they offered various offerings in each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for, the, for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated. Verse 6, From the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets, they began to offer these offerings, even though the foundation temple had not been laid. Now, because animal sacrifices are passed, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 through 10, we Christians don't offer burnt offerings anymore. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. However, traditionally, a financial offering is taken on this day, consistent with what the Apostle Paul taught in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, as well as uh, Deuteronomy 16.16, uh, 16, particularly since you see Ezra was tying in the Feast of Trumpets with the Feast of Tabernacles, because the Feast of Tabernacles uh, didn't start until the 15th, whereas the Feast of Trumpets begins the first day of the seventh month, and Ezra had tied them both in. Now there's an inscription in the ruins of and the area known as the Temple Mount that points to where trumpets were usually blown in Jerusalem. Now in our household, traditionally we've had our youngest child blow some kind of trumpet at the beginning of this holy day, as well as throughout it. Now this month is called Ethanim in the Bible, in 1 Kings 8.2. You don't have to go there. But it said, it says, Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King, Solom King Solomon at the feast in the seventh month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And this month is normally called Tishri by the Jews, because that was the name they used for it when they were uh, part of the Babylonian captivity. And the Feast of Trumpets is referred to as the first of Tishri in some of the Jewish literature. Even though they now call it Rosh Hashanah, it wasn't the original name. I'll read this from a Jewish source. Rosh Hashanah literally means head of the year. Not called Rosh Hashanah until Tumudic times. means after the time of Jesus. And something else that Jews say, alongside special offerings in the Holy Temple, the Torah signs one single commandment reformed then. That's the sounding of the shofar. In fact, Torah does not refer to the first day of the seventh month as Rosh Hashanah, but merely as the day of the shofar blast. Okay, Well, actually, the Bible doesn't actually call it the day of the shofar blast. It does say it's the day of a trumpet blast, but again, it was probably a shofar, because we know, again, the months began with uh, the blowing of a shofar. Now, I'd like to read a couple of things from Jewish tradition, and we will tie some of the parts of Jewish tradition with the Bible. You know, Jesus condemned various aspects of Jewish traditions, but there are some parts they had 
interestingly correct. Uh, after uh, services on this holy day, congregants leave the synagogue and they say to each other, may you be inscribed in the book of life. And another th practice among the Ashkenazi Jews is, you should be written and sealed for a good year. It's often shortened to be a good year. It's an expression that they have. Uh, the Kurdish Jews have an had an expression, you should be written in the book of good life. So instead of focusing on good year, it emphasizes good life. But I think it emphasizes the book. And that we're going to get to the book of life later. Rabbi Abraham Danzig, writing in the 18th century, says the greeting was, you should be written and sealed immediately for a good life. Now, real Christians have their names written in the book of life according to various passages in the New Testament. Now, I'd like to read uh, something from, uh, uh, this is Ask a Rabbi. I've heard, Book of Life, I've heard the idea that during the High Holy Days, God writes one's name in a book. Where does this concept come from? And how can this concept bring meaning to the Holy Days for me? The Aish Rabbi replies, The Talmud says that on Rosh Hashanah, God inscribes everyone's name in one of three books. The Talmud says that, but the Bible does not. So I want to make that clear. The Talmud is essentially Jewish interpretations of the Scripture. The righteous go to the book of into the book of life. The evil go to the book of death. And those in between have judgments suspended until Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In actuality, the vast majority of us are neither totally good nor bad. Well, none of us is totally good, except Jesus. We're more like 50-50, according to this rabbi. So we have a few more extra days until Yom Kippur to tip the scales. That's why the Code of Jewish Law recommends going out of our way to do extra mitzvah, extra positive things during this time. So to ensure getting in the Book of Life, we need to do something really dramatic. Well, that's not right. What the Bible says, but that's what they're teaching. For example, someone who sincerely chooses to take on a Jewish observance has a thousand ton weight going for him. The act of coming full circle to Torah is a rare type of decision that can transform you into a different person. Of course, whatever you're holding, it's important to do as much as you can. Don't gossip, show respect to your parents, eat kosher food, whatever you can do, add to it. But what we're really looking for is the megaton weights. Look for breakthroughs. One major decision that can truly change you. Well, we all as Christians should be looking to change and improve our lives, including dramatically. But we, it doesn't have to be the period between uh, Feast of Trumpets and Day of Adonement. Now, the first biblical allusion that we have to the Book of Life is in the book of Exodus. The 32, 32nd chapter of Exodus I'm going to start in verse 32. Moses is talking to God and says, Yet now, if you will forgive them their sins. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. Now therefore, go and lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. 
Hold my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punish them on them for their sin. Now Moses knew his name was in some book, in this particular book. In this book we see, I mean this passage we see God talking about a book as well as a time of punishment. Now in the 69th Psalm, which we're going to go to, um, same book is mentioned as well as various concepts related to it. Psalm 69, starting verse 27. Charge them with crime upon crime. Oh, this is from the NIV. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. Now, this book seems to be written in other places in the book of Psalms. Let's go to Psalm 40, verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your laws within my heart. So the psalmist is saying, You've got a scroll of a book it's written for me. So it's another illusion. Now let's go to Psalm 56, verse 8. You, God, remember my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? Now let's go to Psalm 139, verse 16. Sometimes, you know, well, I believe God's got some type of a literal book. Everything we've done is kind of like God has us in a, a data file, some kind of computer memory thing, everything. Anyway, verse 16, Psalm 139. Your eyes saw my substance, yet being unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Now we know God's got a book. Now let's go to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. And we'll go to verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Now these verses show that those who fear eternal are mentioned in a book. But those who aren't righteous aren't in it. This appears to be another reference to the book of life. Now, Christians who are inscribed in the book of life are going to be born again at the resurrection, which occurs with the seventh trumpet mentioned in the book of Revelation. And this is a resurrection that leads to life. Now, I want to go to the book of Proverbs, starting with Proverbs chapter 10. Give me a moment to get there. Because in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, there are various things that talk about what leads to life. Proverbs 10, starting verse 16. The labor of the righteous leads to life, and the wages of the wicked to sin. He who keeps instructions, like from this book, is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. Now let's go over a couple chapters to 
Proverbs 28, 20, excuse me, Proverbs 12, verse 28. Proverbs 12, verse 28. In the way of righteousness is life, and in his pathways there is no death. In Psalm 119, 172 says, All God's commandments are righteousness. This is what leads to life. Let's go to Proverbs 14. This time read verse 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. If you believe there's a God, understand that there's a God, and you can prove there's a God, by the way. Uh, we've got a booklet here. I'll hold this one up. Is God's existence logical? I believe you can absolutely prove that there is a God. And if there is a God, do you believe He's got power? And if so, don't you think you should obey Him? And speaking of proofs, we also have another book, Proof Jesus is the Messiah, where you can prove Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah is not Buddha, Muhammad, or whatever. It's Jesus. These books and any other one that I may hold up is available free online at www.ccog.org at ccog.org And since I keep talking about Feast of Trumpets and other holy days, we also have a book, free booklet, should you keep God's holy days or demonic holidays? Uh, also available at the ccog.org website. If you're still in Proverbs, I'm going to go to Proverbs 19, verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. Now, as far as eternal life goes, it's going to be given at the time of the last trumpet to God's people. We're going to go to Isaiah 27 and read verse 13. So it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. These passages in Isaiah seem to be referring to the last trumpet, the one that signals the return of Jesus Christ, establishment of the kingdom of God. Now, uh, after I did my sermon last year related to the Feast of Trumpets, the Temple Institute uh, put something out uh, regarding this. So I'd like to read a little bit from something they put out September 11, 2020. This is Moses' words seem to reflect and draw upon fateful events that occurred in the very first day of life of Adam, the first man, whose birthday the Jews celebrate on Rosh Hashanah, the day of the creation of man. Now I should comment that Jews never used to celebrate birthdays. Uh, this is kind of a, a new custom. But the idea that the creation of man could have been on the first of day of the seventh month is a long-standing uh, uh, tradition. Whether it's accurate or not, we don't know. We suspect it might be. Anyway, continuing here, the Temple Institute says, Moses directs his uh, words to the children of Israel who assembled before him to prepare for life after his impending death. But he says, Moses' words are, this is relevant for us today. As we say, well, farewell to the Hebrew year of 5780. And again, they they're off by over 200 years on this. And we ready ourselves for the upcoming year. Moses himself is clearly aware 
His words were intended for all the ages. For he says in Deuteronomy 29, verses 13 to 14, this is a Jewish translation, but not only with you am I making this covenant an oath, but with those standing here before us today, our God, and to those who are not with us today. Not with us is being a nod for the future. And then continuing here, they wrote, uh, this is a reference to Deuteronomy 30, verses 15-18. Behold, I set before you today life and good, death and evil, insomuch as I command you to love. They use Hashem, your God, to walk in His ways and deserve His commandments. The statutes, His ordinances, that you will live and increase. And Hashem, your God, will bless you in the land which you coming to take possession of. But if your heart deviates and you don't listen, and you're going to be drawn astray, and you prostrate yourself before foreign deities and uh, uh, serve them, I'll declare to you this day, you'll surely perish. You will not live long in the days you're going to get. Are these words of Moses not a direct parallel to the words God spoke to Adam the day of creation? Now they're referring to Genesis 2, verse 16 to 17. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you shall die. In essence, God was setting before Adam a choice between life and good, death and evil. And every day we are faced with choices between life and death and good and evil. The choice is yours, this says. Adam, uh, God endowed with, uh, like us, free will. And he had a commandment to do, he didn't do it. It says, Adam chose the path of ego. I, I am, I know what's better. I don't have to keep God's holy days. They were done away, which they weren't. Uh, my New Testament says it. No, it doesn't. There's some mistranslations that people have twisted to that. Early Christians, by the way, who understood Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, did not think they were not supposed to keep the peace of trumpets. So they did not believe the New Testament got rid of it like a lot of Protestants uh, like to say. And uh, speaking of Protestants, we have a book called Hope of Salvation, How the Continuing Church of God Differs from Protestantism. Protestants, contrary to their claim, do not stand for sola scriptura. Uh, since I mentioned the Protestants, perhaps I should mention uh, Greco-Roman Catholics. Greco-Roman Catholics like to claim that theirs was the original faith, but if you look at the writings of the Bible and people they call early saints, you will find uh, actually they kept the Holy Days, they kept the Seventh-day Sabbath, and a bunch of other doctrines that, and positions that the Greco-Roman Catholics don't hold to this day. Again, these books and any other ones I hold up are available at the www.ccog.org website. Anyway, finishing up with the Temple Institute here, it says, uh, you know, Adam chose the way of ego. God adds via the words of Moses. Uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I said before you, life and death, the blessing and curse, choose life. And he says, they say, God's talking to us for this coming year, choose life. And, you know, Adam chose Satan's ways over God's ways, and Christians are supposed to choose God's ways over Satan's. Now, in a radio broadcast, uh, the late uh, WCG uh, leader, Herbert W. Armstrong, he said a few things 
about uh, choosing life. I want to read some things that he said in this radio broadcast. This was in the 20th century. Now, there are laws you're going to have to choose every one of you. Now, if you neglect so great a salvation as God has offered you, you are choosing. You are choosing the wrong way. You are sentencing yourself to death. The penalty of sin. You have to choose life and do it of your own will voluntarily. Your own volition. Your own free will. Or you can never have salvation. The Apostle Peter said, God grants His Holy Spirit to those who obey Him in Acts 5.29. In Hebrews it says, Jesus is the author of eternal salvation of those who obey Him. No one can talk you into salvation, like a salesman or a preacher. It doesn't matter how much they love you or how much they want you to be saved, they can't do it. Uh, he said, I learned a long time ago to quit trying to talk people into things. I just preach the truth. I want to tell you, your whole relationship with God is a private, personal relationship between you and God. Now, he says, I don't say for one minute we're not influenced by circumcision, circumstances. Sorry about that. I fully understand that God can bring circumstances that will uh, bring us to a place where we look at things differently. And perhaps then we'll choose the right way to be willing to do it. But still, God doesn't force you. He's not going to force you. He's going to let you make your own decisions. He says, if you do this, one, you can have life. If not, you perish. He says, what are you going to decide? And he cites scripture saying, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. That I, the Almighty, the ruler, set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. God says we have to choose, and that's an order. God's going to make you choose, and even if you try not to choose, neglect, you're choosing automatically. You're choosing death. You're choosing to perish. You're choosing the penalty. But you can choose life. It's up to you. Kingdom of God is a family. If you choose life, my friends, you'll be first begotten of God and then later born into uh, God's family. You know, a lot of people don't understand uh, God's plan and what God's trying to do. Uh, you know, much of God's plan is a mystery to people. And that's why I'm looking for this particular book, The Mystery of God's Plan. Why did God create anything? Why did God make you? Most people do not know this. Um, I was reading something uh, that... Uh, Last September, it was reported that uh, Pope Francis said, and let me assure you what he said, he does not know why God made uh, anything. And so uh, that's something you, you can know if you want to. And again, we have a free book on this. Now, I want to get into the New Testament. Now, in addition to discussing the Book of Life on the Feast of Trumpets, Jewish tradition says that this is the day of judgment. It's the day of shofar blowing. Now, the New Testament frequently mentions the blowing of trumpets. And in the Book of Revelation, there's various trumpets blown and various things happen, woes and plagues and various uh, destruction things happen. But I want to go into something Jesus said. Go to the book of Matthew, Matthew 24. 
Matthew 24, starting verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. These are the words of Jesus. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the sound of a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. As far as the elect, who are those? Those are those who God is calling in this age. Those who have actually chosen life. If you're wondering if God's calling you or not, we have a free booklet online as well called Is God Calling You? Not everybody's being called now. But if you're listening to this message, there's a very high probability that God is calling you. If you'll respond. If you'll choose life. Anyway, I want to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just read a couple of verses here this time from Paul. Starting verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. They will become alive. And those who are actually alive in that time will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And by the way, we're supposed to comfort one another with these words. So we see that the Jesus and Paul taught that the saints are going to be gathered after a particular trumpet goes forth. And Jesus comes with a comfort blast that comes after the Great Tribulation, which happens, referred to in Matthew 24, 21. And which trumpet? Well, it's the last trumpet. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to read verse uh, 52 and 58. Verse 52, 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And those who are dead will become alive. Verse 58. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, that you're supposed to abound in the work of the Lord, which includes, by the way, uh, getting the gospel of the kingdom of the world as a witness, uh, Matthew 24, 14. I was looking for a booklet on that. Here we go. There's, we have a booklet on that, which is available in over 100 languages at the ccog.org website, by the way. Uh, as well as you choosing life on a regular basis and building character and fulfill the purpose God has for you, which we refer to this particular book has more information about that as well. As far as how to live as a Christian, we have another booklet on that. Christians, Ambassadors of the Kingdom of God. Anyway, the Bible shows that in the end, true Christians will win. Those who will choose life will be put on immortality and will have their names written in the book of life. I talk about church history from time to time, probably a lot. Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, he looked forward to the fulfillment of this time. He wrote in his letter to the Philippians, now this is not scripture, Wherefore, girding up his loins, serve the Lord in fear and truth, as those who forsaken the vain empty talk and error of the multitude, 
and believed in him who raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and gave him glory and a throne at his right hand. To him all things in heaven and earth are subject. Him every spirit serves. He comes as a judge of the living and the dead. His blood will God require of those who do not believe in him. But he who raised him up from the dead will raise us up also if we do his will and walk in his commandments and love what he loved. So Polycarp understood God's people keep the Ten Commandments, they live and obey God, and God will raise them up. As far as the Ten Commandments go, I've heard all kinds of false arguments about them. Basically, Protestants uh, either don't keep them or think they're done away with or think just being a good person is enough. The Greco-Roman Catholics think you're supposed to keep them, but they have so many exceptions to them. It's like the Pharisees. You know, the Jews at Jesus' time said they kept the Ten Commandments, but the Pharisees actually violated every one of them. And we go into some of that in here as well. Again, another book that's available. Uh, I want to go to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 20. Read some words of Jesus. Starting verse 35. Jesus said, But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. They're equal the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. For he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live in him. So Jesus is saying we've got a resurrection and that will bring one alive. In Matthew 19, verse 17, I have to go there. Jesus said, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Let's go to John, John chapter 3. We'll start in verse 14. Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. For whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, believing him doesn't just believe, mean you believe there was a Jesus and he came to die for your sins. The, the demons believe that. But to believe it to the point where you'll obey, the demons won't do that. And nor will most people in this age. He believes him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might live. And this is something that the Greco-Roman Protestants don't fully understand, even though it was an original belief of the Church. We have a book goes into hundreds of scriptures called Universal Offer of Salvation. Now we do not teach that all will be saved, but that all will have an opportunity for salvation in this age or the age to come. This is backed up by hundreds of scriptures. It's also backed up by early church history. This is what early Christians originally believed. One of the reasons that this book is called Hope of Salvation is because Protestantism tends not to understand God's plan of salvation. And one of the reasons this is called Beliefs of the Original Catholic Church is people who call themselves Catholic now often do not understand what the original teachings were regarding salvation for those called in this age and those in the age to come. But the Bible supports this. 
even though many don't believe it or accept it. Now, I'm going to go to the writings of Paul. This is Romans chapter 6. Starting verse 22. For now, having been set free from sin and having become the slaves of God, you have fruits to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when do we get that? At the last trump. Now I want to go to Jesus' words. This will be in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. And uh, we'll start with verse 24, John 5. Verse 24. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come to judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, which all who are in the grave will hear his voice, and shall come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So there is a resurrection of life to those who have done good. The Feast of Trumpets helps picture that. And this is a resurrection for those whose names are inscribed in the book of life. Now we were in 1 Corinthians 15 before. I'd like to go back there. I'll give you a moment to get there. And this time we'll start in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul wrote, Now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? And many who claim Christianity don't really believe in the resurrection of the dead. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, we're... And we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead did not rise, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. For in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are all men most pitiable. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, to, to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. He must reign till he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now this resurrection happens the last trumpet. This is apparently the seventh trumpet that we read about in Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we know Jesus is going to return with the sound of a trumpet. And we know this is 
trumpet is the seventh one because it's part of the sequence that's described in Revelation 8. And I'll read a few passages here. When we opened the seventh seal, there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And then, verse 7, the first angel sounds, and then eventually you get to the seventh one, which I just read in chapter 11, verse 15. You should say, well, if, if Jesus is coming on that seventh trumpet, then we know the day and hour, right? Doesn't that contradict what he said in Matthew uh, 24 about the uh, day and the hour? Well, we don't actually know when the final trumpet will be blown yet, but it will be to announce Christ's return. Now, some believe because of similarities of some scriptures that Jews read at weddings and as well as what they read at uh, Feast of Trumpets, that this is proof that Jesus is going to return on the Feast of Trumpets. Um, I'm not convinced that's the day he comes. There's various reasons I think it would be uh, before then. But the first trumpet, I believe, of the seven trumpets is blown the Feast of Trumpets. And uh, so I think that's how it goes. But again, the Feast of Trumpets signifies a blowing of trumpets, more than one. Now, I mentioned about the Jews in the Book of Life. I mentioned about the Old Testament the Book of Life. Now let's go into the uh, New Testament. The term Book of Life is actually used eight times in the New Testament, at least when I did a, a search on the New King James Version, the term Book of Life showed up eight times. And six of those times pertains to Christians, and two of the times it says, these people, people to mark or various things. They're not written in the book of the book of life. So six times to Christians and two to people who are not are not Christians. Now probably maybe the, one of the first uh, except first times in the New Testament we see an allusion to the book of life. And this is not a quote to use the term book of life. It's the book of Luke. This is Luke chapter ten. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 18 with Jesus speaking here. He said, I saw Satan fall like heaven, like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice your names are written in heaven. Written in heaven, what? Where? Well, to be written would be in the book. It be in the book of life. Now, in Philippians 4.3, the Apostle Paul does specifically refer to the book of life. Paul writes to the Philippians, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So we know the book of life is a biblical concept. It's mentioned in the Old Testament, mentioned in the New Testament. Now I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 12. And this goes along with what Jesus said in Luke 10, starting verse 22, Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, 
to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Registered, written. Now, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 5, the apostle John wrote that Jesus taught, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. It's the saints who are written in the book of life. And the saints are the ones who are resurrected at the last trumpet. Now, other passages in the book of Revelation mention that those who worship the beast, those involved with abominations, those who take away words from the book of Revelation, are not among those whose names are written in the book of life. Now, the book of Revelation has lots of trumpets blown. And... I, for this sermon this year, I'm not going to go through all the negative things, but I do want to say something. Uh, this is something that uh, from the uh, old uh, Worldwide Church of God taught. He says, God's instructions to, Isa to Israel through Isaiah, Isaiah 58.1, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, show my people their transgression, the house of Jacob their sins. Portions of the prophet's warnings were fulfilled by ancient Israel's captivity. Yet many of these prophecies are dual, having both ancient and modern fulfillments. And there's various warnings that's going to uh, hit us. And again, if you go through the book of Revelation, various trumpets are mentioned and various disasters, if you will, and punishments are going to be uh, given. But again, the focus I want now, today, in this sermon is to look to the last trumpet, to the granting of life, to those who are in the book of life. Now the Apostle Paul kept the Feast of Trumpets, otherwise he would not have been able to say in Acts 28:17, Men and brethren, I've done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. And he also said in Philippians 3, verses uh, 4 through 6, that if anyone had confidence of flesh, he's got more. He was circumcised, stock Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless, which meant, Paul says, he was keeping uh, the commandments of God, which included the holy days. Um, I mentioned uh, Polycarp of Smyrna. I'm not going to go into details, but uh, there, there was a writing by somebody named Peonius called The Life of Polycarp. Well, it's got some odd things in it. Basically, it showed that Polycarp was keeping all holy days. Beyond that, we also know that in Asia Minor, people professed Christ were keeping the holy days because it's the late 4th century, because John Chrysostom uh, condemned them for keeping the Feast of Trumpets in a sermon that uh, was preached in Antioch, Syria, on Sunday, September 5th, uh, 387. I've gone over that before, so I'm not going to read the quote here. But we do have an article about the Book of Life and Feast of Trumpets, which this sermon is based on, and you can find that at the cogwriter.com website. That's www.cogwriter.com website. 
or if I go too fast, which I try to slow myself down, but I've got a lot I always want to go through here. Um, as far as history goes, uh, Sabbath keepers in Transylvania in the 1500s uh, were keeping the Day of Atonement and uh, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, which they called the Day of Remembrance. And I read from Malachi 3.16, uh, it's a reference to the Book of Life, uh, the Book of Remembrance there. Now, Jews have uh, a couple of things. They think that uh, there are people who are in another book. So I'd like to read just a little bit about, about that. So there's a story by uh, Rabbi Huspei. There's an on piece uh, of trumpets. Books are opened. And this says uh, the books are opened on the day of judgment. And we know the Bible talks about judgment day. Uh, the Bible, the New Testament does not say that that happens on uh, the Feast of Trumpets, but in a sense uh, you see various judgments, trumpet judgments going throughout uh, the book of Revelation. Okay, this uh, rabbi also says there's three books open, uh, one for the thoroughly wicked, one for the thoroughly righteous, and one for the intermediate. Thoroughly righteous are those in the book of life. Thoroughly wicked are death. And then the, uh, interme the doom of the intermediate is suspended from the time of the new year to the day of atonement. Now we don't teach that, but what we do teach, consistent with Isaiah 65 verse 20, is that there is uh, an age to come. Jesus referred to the age to come a couple times in the gospel accounts. And we believe that period of time uh, will be uh, 100 years where people will have an opportunity uh, to understand the gospel, be, preach the gospel, and have a real chance to understand it as opposed to being deceived by uh, Satan and various other things that happen uh, throughout history and, and false traditions and those kinds of things. Anyway, so the Jews say, what text uh, uh, tells us this? Then they cite Psalm 69, 27-29. Let to be blotted out of the book of the living and not with the righteousness. Then a rabbi says uh, from Exodus 20, uh, Exodus that don't blot me out. And so they've got a few scriptures that they, they go to. It says also Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 2.6 says the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down the grave and brings up. And says, Beth Hillel says, He bounds in grace. He inclines the scales toward grace. And of them of David said, Now we're going to cite Psalm 116 verse 1. I love the, that the Lord should hear my voice and my supplication. And on their behalf David composed uh, the whole passage. I was brought low and saved me. So basically they're saying that uh, they think that scriptures support the idea that there are those who have written the book of life, there are those who are going to be destroyed, and then there are others. Let's go to the book of Revelation chapter 20. I 
And I saw, starting verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whom the face of the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, stand before God, and the books were open. So you see, there is more than just the book of life. This is where the Jews have that, right? Another book was opened, which is the book of life. So it's distinguishing book of life from other books. Dead were judged according to their works by the things that are written in the books. Well, the criteria would be things the books. The Bible is a collection of books. Verse 13, The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades delivered the dead who were in them. And they were judged each according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. This time of judgment mentioned, uh, we believe, is for those who have not rejected God and blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And they'll have an opportunity for salvation. As I mentioned before, uh, we've got a book that goes into some depth about this. I'd like to go to uh, Revelation 20, but go back to verse 4. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their heads, hands. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Because of these passages, the Church of God's position is and has been. There's at least a thousand years between when the righteous, whose names are written in the book of life, and others will be resurrected. There'll be a thousand years between the first and second resurrection. We don't, so we don't agree with the Jewish idea that the, uh, the wicked are handled at the same feast of trumpets, the same trumpet, the last trumpet, than, uh, than those written in the Book of Life are. It's, it's, it's different. You know, I'd like to go to Revelation chapter 21. I've been talking about the Book of Life and the Feast of Trumpets. So I want to read the last couple of passages in the Bible to talk about the Book of Life. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepares a bride adorned for her husband. But I saw no temple in it. I'm sorry, I'm cutting down to verse 22. For the Lord God Almighty and Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. His, its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means entered any that defiles or causes an abomination or lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, which is when we win. Those who are written in the book of life, this trumpet. Now let's go to chapter 22. 
We'll start with verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And anyone takes away from the words of this book, prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. I'm coming quickly. He who testifies these things says, surely I'm coming quickly. So you have to be in the book of life to be part of this city. Anyway, the Feast of Trumpets helps picture Jesus' return, and the Book of Life is something we should all want to be uh, mentioned in. Let me read from the uh, Statement of Beliefs of the Continuing Church of God. Just a little bit here. Feast of Trumpets helps picture the blowing of the seven trumpets in the Book of Revelation, announcing events taking place during the Day of the Lord. The last trumpet signals the resurrection of the saints and the coming of Jesus. For the trumpet shall sound, the dead will be raised, and corruptible, we shall be changed. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will also rise. And we will be granted life. Because of what the New Testament teaches, the Feast of Trumpets should be highly relevant for Christians. Uh, I'd like to read something from the uh, uh, Greco-Roman Catholic uh, Bishop Ambrose of Milan, who's considered a, a saint by those churches. He, he, he wrote, this is uh, in the uh, 4th century, But it is now time, I think, to speak of the trumpets, since my discourse is nearing its end, that the trumpet may also be the sign of finishing my address. We read of seven trumpets in the revelation of John, which seven angels received. And there you read that when the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, there was a great voice from heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I read that before, that's Revelation 11:15. The word trumpet is also used for a voice. As you read, Behold, a door opened in heaven, and the first voice I heard is of a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come hither, and I'll show you the things which must come to pass. We also read, Blow upon the trumpet, that's the beginning of the month, and again elsewhere, Praise him with the sound of a trumpet. Therefore, we ought with all power to observe what is the significance of the trumpets, lest, accepting them like old women as part of the story, we should be in danger if we think Things are unworthy of spiritual teaching or not befitting the dignity of scriptures. In reality, having gone to Roman Catholic and Protestant services, I've never heard them go into any great depth about the significance of the trumpets because they made it sound like it was not important enough. Ambrose continues with, For when we read our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places, we ought not to think of the weapons of the flesh but such as are mighty before God. It's not enough to see the one trumpet or hear its sound unless one understands the significance of the sound. For as a trumpet gives an uncertain sound, how would you prepare? Therefore, it's important we understand the meaning of the voice of the trumpet, lest we seem barbarian when we either hear or utter the trumpet sounds of this sort. Therefore, we speak, let us pray that the Holy Spirit would interpret for us. 
It says in the Old Testament there's different types of uh, trumpets and they have different types of purposes. I'll skip over much of what he wrote, but I want to go to this part here. Let us then see the body of Christ, which the voice of the Father from heaven, as it were, the last trumpet, has shown to you at the time when the Jews say it thundered. The body of Christ, which again the last trump shall reveal, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven at the voice of the archangel, at the trump of God, and that they that are dead in Christ shall rise again. So he's talking about getting life to the last trumpet. Why am I reading from a Greco-Roman saint? To let you know that this was not a new idea. He said, well, you read it from the New Testament. I'm aware of that. One of the reasons, though, I'm reading some of this is if you have a Greco-Roman or Protestant background, realize it was still considered important by the Greco-Romans in the late 4th century. The seventh trumpet seems to signify the Sabbath of the week. Therefore, the shadow of the future rest is figured in the, in the days, months, and years of this world. Therefore, the children of Israel are commanded by Moses in the seventh month, in the first day of the month, a rest should be established for all at the memorial of trumpets, and no servile work should be done. But a sacrifice offered to God, because at that end of the week, as it were, the Sabbath of the world, spiritually, not bodily work, is required of us. So he's saying is the end of this age. Now early Christians believed a couple of things, well, many things, but really to hear. One is the weekly Sabbath pictured the coming millennial reign of Jesus Christ. They taught that God gave humankind 6,000 years to, to work its own ways, and that the end of the 6,000 years would be a Sabbath last a thousand years. This was a common teaching, and the Greco-Roman scholars know this, but they don't officially teach it anymore. But Ambrose was referring to this in what he what he wrote there. The, the last what comes after the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, will be the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So that's something else the Feast of Trumpets pictures. You know, a lot of people who don't keep them thinking. These are Jewish holy days, holidays, they're not relevant for Christians. But they are. But because they don't keep them, they, they ignore it. What's funny, you'll hear them sometimes say, well, those are a shadow of things to come. And, there's, and, and there are messages from them. Well, what shadow? Of what? They don't teach it. They don't tend to teach the Feast of Trumpets pictures the seven trumpets and the return of Jesus Christ establishing the kingdom of God. But it does. And the fact that Christians will get eternal life then. You know, the Feast of Trumpets is important. And it really should be considered highly relevant and important to those who profess Christ. Jesus is going to return in power with fantastic glory He's going to seize control of this world. Let's read about that in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, starting verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness... 
He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Now, we're talking about Jesus. He had a name written on which no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So we know that's Jesus. You can read about that in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, first few verses. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, linen, white and clean, followed him on the white horse, horses. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword that with it, that he would strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Again, the millennial reign here. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So Jesus is going to come. And basically, if you keep continuing here in uh, chapter 19, you see the deceit, the beast power will be, will lose. They're going to go against Jesus, the false prophet, uh, and the beast will cast them like a fire. And a time of peace will enter. If you go to chapter 20, starting in verse 1, you see that I saw an angel coming down from heaven, Having the keys to the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him in the bottomless pit and shut him in, shut him up, put a seal on him, so that he could not deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. Then he'd be released for a little while. So, the political powers of this world who will be trying to force people to worship the beast and mark the beast so that they will be put aside, they will lose. And Satan, who influenced them, and who does signs and wonders through them, will also be put away for a thousand years so the nations will no longer be deceived. And those of us who have been called of God, those of us who are written in the book of life, will rule Jesus Christ. And when does that happen? At the last trumpet. Those who don't keep the biblical holy days don't fully grasp that. But the reality is, the Bible explains that the book of life is for Christians. The book of life is for those who obey God. And, when will we get this? At the last trump. Believe God, because in the end we win. Comfort one another with those words. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.